The Complete Genetic Blueprint for Two of the Deadliest Cancers, Pancreatic Cancer and Brain Cancer, was recently deciphered by a team at the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center. Understanding the molecular mechanisms of these cancers can help us develop new therapeutic modalities. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is one of the investigators in this trial, Dr. Will Parsons. Dr. Parsons is a fellow in pediatric oncology at the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center. Dr. Parsons' long-term goal is to develop as an independent translational investigator in the molecular biology and treatment of brain tumors. He currently is undertaking a large-scale genomic approach in collaboration with the Kinsler Vogelstein Lab to sequence more than 15,000 genes from several cases of both glioblastoma multiform and medulloblastoma. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Parsons. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. Why study pancreatic and brain cancer, Will? There were two reasons we did that. One was that they're both among the relatively common cancers in the United States with pancreatic cancer occurring in roughly 40,000 patients, new patients a year, and brain cancer, glioblastoma, and about half of that. And they also are ones that we have very limited treatment options. So tell us what you found so far. I'm just going to go back a little bit, if I may, to explain the origin of why we're doing the study. Over the last 20 years or so, it's become clear that cancer is, in essence, a genetic disease, and not meaning that it's something that's inherited from your parents, but that it's a disease in which Mutations in individual genes in a cell cause the cells to grow out of control, not die when they're supposed to, and generally not be regulated in any way. And in a few cases, investigators have found specific genes causing that process and have been able to target them for therapies and for medicines and also in terms of diagnostics, and it's been remarkably successful in a few isolated instances. What's become clear, though, is that we really don't know the real framework and the vast majority of the genes and the genetic alterations that are causing these cancers. So our goal here was to take a step back, start from the beginning, and look at all the genes that are present in the human tumor cells and try to figure out what's going on. So what did you find? What we found was that the background and the landscape, so to speak, is much more complicated than we might have imagined. So instead of having only one or two alterations in a single gene or it being in a very limited number of genes, we found the average tumor cell in pancreatic and brain cancer to have on the order of 60 different mutations or alterations occurring. In one cell? In one cell. And part of the trick has been figuring out which of those are occurring just due to chance because in the replication of DNA in a cell, there's always some background rate of errors that are occurring, and some of them likely have nothing to do with the growth of the cell, and trying to differentiate those from ones that are really making a difference. And so I've had to derive all sorts of statistical kind of tests for that and ways to look at it. In the end, what we think it comes down to is on the order of about 10 of them, 10 to 15 maybe, are actually playing a role in creating the cancer. Now, in your paper, you mentioned pathways. Tell us about that. Well, one way to make this more simplified, both in terms of making sense of it intellectually and also in terms of targeting these changes in terms of using them for diagnostics or therapeutics, is to provide some order to it. And one way we can do that is by assigning these genes to different pathways. So, for example, there might be a pathway that's involved in a certain aspect of cell growth, and there's a number of different genes in that pathway. What we found is that 
different tumors may have different mutations within different genes of that pathway. So instead of all of them simply having something wrong with gene A, some proportion of them may have something wrong with gene A, some other proportion, different tumors have something with gene B, and so on. So that the net effect is that the pathway is affected in nearly all of the tumors, but that in any single individual tumor, there's some variety to it. What do we know, Will, about the difference between solid tumors and other problems like leukemia? We're still learning about that a little bit. Most of the studies that we've done so far have focused on solid tumors. And so the numbers in terms of numbers of mutations and the things I was talking about are are most directly relevant to that. Other investigators have also been looking at leukemias, or what we call some of the more liquid tumors. There have been a couple very interesting cases in leukemias where a single alteration, in one case a translocation between two different genes occurring in uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia, for example, has been found in the vast majority of patients, which is obviously a, a very nice finding because then it can be targeted with a single medicine or single group of medicines in most patients. So that's, that's really been quite effective. But we're still learning about some of the differences between the tumor types. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Will Parsons. We are discussing his research looking into the molecular mechanisms of cancer. Will, it's been suggested that maybe the development of new treatments is really not the way of the future for looking at cancer. Should we maybe be focusing our energy on prevention and early detection instead of treatment necessarily? I think that's a great point, and that's actually one of the things we're very interested in looking at. The important part to note about these studies we're doing is that we're just trying to find the background information such that we can design rational approaches to all of these questions. So, for example, by finding the different mutations that are commonly occurring in human tumors, you can use it in a number of ways. Number one, you can obviously design medicines to those changes, which is what you were first referring to. Number two, you can use the changes for diagnosis and prognostication. For example, one of the mutations that we found in a decent minority of patients with the glioblastomas was found to be associated with a much more benign, relatively speaking, clinical course. So instead of having a median survival of about a year, as most patients with that terrible tumor do, those patients had a survival of more like four years and might be susceptible to different treatment. But then the third leg of that is what you're getting at, and it is something I think is really interesting, and that's once we have a knowledge of these changes, our hope is that we'll be able to use them for early diagnosis as well. For example, it's now possible to detect DNA and mutated DNA from tumors in blood, even if it's not a leukemia or not a tumor that's normally in the blood. So we could, for example, if we have common mutations or a panel of mutations that are known to occur in one of these tumors, could design a test from the blood to see if you see any of these alterations, and obviously that would be a way of hopefully diagnosing them earlier. Because for both of these types of tumors, they're ones that tend to create symptoms relatively late, and at that point, it's, it's already a big problem. Then, of course, we have to think about ethical issues like insurance coverability, that's a word. If you have that certain panel of mutations and are likely to develop cancer, might you have a hard time getting insurance? I guess that's going to be one of the big ethical issues facing us in this century is how to handle this additional information about patients. I mean, obviously, the basic principles are the same in terms of not sharing them in ways that the patients are not approving of, and we have all the regulations that you know well about governing that. But clearly, in these next years, there's going to be an infinite amount more genetic information available. So it's going to require us to be very careful about how we use those. So what's next with your work? 
What's next is a couple different things. One is we're very interested in looking at other different tumor types and comparing them because some of the most valuable information we find is when we find things that are either common to multiple types of tumors. So, for example, a gene that might be mutated in uh, brain cancers and also pancreatic cancers. But then it's also interesting to see what the differences are. And, for example, as you were asking about the leukemias before, what kind of the differences in terms of the numbers of mutations, in terms of the types of genes that are mutated, and what that might say about these things mechanistically. So looking at other kinds of tumors is one step. The other important part is to follow up on the findings that we have from these sorts of studies. So these are only a first step in terms of providing any improved therapies for patients with these kinds of cancers. First, we find these genes. Next, we have to look at them and see, for example, what they're doing, how these mutations alter their function, try to figure out if there's ways in which we could target that in some way, ways in which we can use them for diagnostics. So really the next step is is following up on some of the interesting genes. Now, I assume that a lot of this work is done with multiple centers, not just at Hopkins. How do you coordinate what must be a massive amount of information? That's absolutely true. It's a a collaborative effort. Many of these quote-unquote big science projects that are being done these days by necessity require a bunch of different people resources from different places and talents from different groups. And so this project, for example, was done primarily here at Hopkins, but also with our collaborators at Duke University and a number of others. In part, that's because the samples are difficult to come by because it requires really carefully curated and analyzed samples such that we know that they're very pure tumor samples, that there's matched normal DNA, for example, from the same patients, and that we have associated clinical data so that we can make some sense of the results. So it's something that requires a number of groups. Basically, the way we do it is frequent communication, a number of meetings, and having a very clear overall plan of which parts of the group are responsible for which parts of the project, and then we adapt from there. A very effective way to do things, to rely on the talents of a number of different people. And in this most recent study, how many patients, roughly, did you look at? Roughly, we looked at on the order of... 100 patients with each of the the different types of tumors. So you had mentioned that one of the next steps is to look at other tumors. What else besides glioblastoma and pancreatic CA are you interested in? We're interested in a number of others, actually, and we're still trying to decide where to go next. In other studies, we've already looked at breast and colon cancer on a slightly smaller scale than on this project. So we're interested in those results as well. Now, if people want to learn more about your work, where should they look? The simplest way to do it would be to, in terms of looking on the internet, would be just to search for Johns Hopkins Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center and then search for any of these types of tumors that I'm talking about. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. It's good talking to you. We've been speaking with Dr. Will Parsons from the Johns Hopkins Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland. An interesting question. Perhaps the development of new therapeutics is not the way of the future for cancer treatment. Food for thought for us all. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcasts, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions or topics that you'd like to hear, please call us at 888-MD-XM-157. That's a toll-free number, of course. Thank you for listening.